um, with the events that have transpired in Israel, it's no accident that we're starting this study on First and Second Thessalonians and then on to Peter. Okay? It's God's perfect timing that he's preparing his body. So let's go a little background about this book. Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica. It's a city that was called Therma back um, before 300 B.C. because of the hot springs in the area. Then Philip of Macedon, the Macedonian, the father of Alexander the Great, was conquering. He conquered the area in a, in a major battle, and he gave it to one of his generals, um, to General Cassandra, who was married to one of Philip's daughters, and her name was Thessalonike. Nike means victory, or Nike. That's where we get the word Nike from. And so the name was changed to that. And around the time of Paul, it was a major port city in the north part of Greece that called the Macedonia on the Ignatian Way or the Via Ignatia. Okay, so major Roman road. So the Romans made it a free city in about 167 B.C., Okay, and at the time of Paul, it was about 200,000 people. And there were a strong Jewish presence then and throughout history up until the Nazis in 1943. Okay, at that time, there was about 60,000 Jews in the city. The Nazis deported 40, 56 of them to the concentration camps, and only 1,200 Jews remained there today in the city now greater population over a million okay so devastated and wiped out the jews in that area so that gives a little bit of a background of what we're dealing with in this area so macedonia so this this area is northern part of of, of greece just a hundred miles south of the city of philippi a little background again about paul right so he was going to go to asia which is turkey that's the area they're talking about and then he had this dream in, this, in the dream, in the book of Acts, you look in the 16th chapter, the guy said, I think the 16th, maybe it's 14th chapter, he said, hey, come to Macedonia, okay? So he went to Philippi first, and when we get to Philippians, we can talk a little bit more about that, but he meets Lydia there, he's there on his second missionary journey with Silas, okay, also called Silvanus, Silas is his Greek name, Silvanus is his Roman name, okay, and he's there in Philippi, and they get thrown in jail, right? He gets freed of jail, and he eventually goes north to Thessalonica. Now, I'm going to read now from the book of Acts, okay, chapter 17. So if you want to turn there into your Bible. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathered, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. What a testimony. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason had harbored them, and they were all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, Berea being about 50 miles away, 
they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, and they departed. Okay, so Berea is 50 miles away. So he goes, he's only there three Sabbaths. That's three weeks. He's in Thessalonica. Three weeks. Okay, on a second missionary journey, he's three weeks, he's talking to them. Bang, the church comes alive. Okay, he's in Corinth. We talked about that when we went through Corinthians. 18 months, year and a half. Three weeks in Thessalonica, that's it. Okay, so get a little bit of background. The church comes alive in three weeks. Huge uproar. They're in pressure on that. Strong Jewish presence, as I mentioned. They don't like what Paul's talking about because just like the same thing was happened when Jesus was crucified, we have no king but Caesar is what they protest, right? We have no king. He's not our king, okay? They're saying basically the same thing. Jesus was not their king, and they attacked him. They go to this Jason's house who were staying at, but they had already relocated, and then they went after Paul when he went 50 miles away. So that, and this is all by foot, maybe a few by horses, but really, it's a bit of a trek to go there. And you have to be pretty passionate to go 50 miles away by foot to basically stir things up because you don't like what they're doing, okay? Talk about being obsessed, okay? Talk about that kind of opposition they were under. And I want us to be aware of, that might be the kind of opposition we'll deal with with the people who are so fanatical that they can't be reasoned with. That there is no way to communicate with them. Okay? Because it's a spiritual blindness. And they become so stirred up. Like what we're seeing with what's happening now. They have such opinions that are so contrary to what they should be. And they're so adamant about it. That's the kind of things that happen because it's all spiritual. So one of the things you just have to be aware of, just for us to be mindful of, when we're talking about all these things that Paul's talking about, is reason comes from God. God is the one who gives us sanity to reason. He gives us the mind that thinks. And true sanity comes from Christ, having the mind of Christ. Okay? All these people, no matter how good of a scientist you are, okay? I've seen and dealt with many of them at the universities and they're human beings. On some things, even in their science, they're not without their own biases. But definitely in their personal lives, very much human beings. You think they're rational in everything, like th everything is based on reason, they're complete rationalists. That's not true. That's a fallacy. The fallacy is they're all self-ish. Because in ourselves, we are all self-ish. And we think distorted thoughts because we didn't have the reasoning of Christ. So I want you to kind of have that as your, um, basically, foundation of what we're going to talk about. So let's move on and start the beginning of actually our study and start with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, Silvanus is the Roman name for Silas, sometimes used interchangeably, and that's why. The, but I like what he says, because the way that in the Greek, when he says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the preposition there, it basically says those statements in equal footing, basically affirming the divinity of God, a divinity of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So he's not saying Jesus is subordinate to God the Father here. He's basically declaring co-equal. A little bit more background about this book. This, some people believe it was one of the first epistles written by Paul. Others say it's Galatians, okay? I think it leans more towards Galatians being his first book, but it's still not sure. 
We believe he probably wrote it while he was in Corinth. On his first missionary trip, he went to Corinth. And so while he was in Corinth there and there, for 18 months, he, um, he wrote the letter to the Thessalonians. Okay? So, sorry, second missionary trip. So he went south to Athens, then to Corinth, and that's when he writes this letter after the fact. Okay, so he says grace and peace. So the word grace um, in the Greek is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, and peace is Irene. Woman's name, Irene, means peace. But the Hebrew word for peace is, of course, shalom. So the Greeks greet each other with grace, grace to you, grace to you. And obviously the Hebrews would say shalom like they still do. So he's trying to appeal to both the Gentiles and the Greeks at that time. Oh, sorry, Gentiles and the Hebrews at that time, Jews at the time. Timothy was with him, okay? He met Timothy before in Lystra, and Timothy was, whose mother was, um, I believe his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek, mother's Eunice, and they went on the journey together. So, what does he wish? He wishes peace. And I want us to remember something about peace for us. There is no peace apart from Christ. And, you know, I wasn't always Christian. I was in New Age and into meditation. I did not have sustained peace. I did have some moments of quiet. I did not have that underlying peace, the security that my eternity was okay. That in all things, things are okay. And that can only come with, with resting in Christ. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20, 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace says my God for the wicked. So God determines what looks, what's the best and sets a standard. He calls those who are wicked, or the, of course, those who are sinful, those who have not accepted him, those who don't acknowledge him as being Lord. Okay? So you either have to be perfect, Jesus being the only one, okay? Otherwise you're with sin, all of us have sin. All of us are wicked apart from Christ. Only by the blood of Christ are we now not under condemnation. We're made right with God. Okay? And by having that right standing with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that's when you have peace. That peace is abiding in Christ. That peace is a, a trusting in the Holy Spirit. That peace is not relying on your own understanding as supreme. I'm not saying check your mind at the door. Don't check your brain at the door. That's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm saying ultimately when push comes to shove, that's not the foundation of what you believe in. Okay? Because, and we'll talk more about what that means by faith. So, peace, the kind of peace we're talking about is a peace of heart because we're not under condemnation from God. We have peace of conscience because we're not in controversy with God. We have a peace of the mind because we don't have anxiety about life. Because we know who's the author of our life. We know who's going to take care of everything. And we have peace of action. That's a hard one for us. Peace of action. There's nothing to gum up the gears, no grit in that machine, machinery, because once you're in that peace, things will tend to flow things will tend to work out. Okay? It doesn't mean that you won't have trouble in trial. It means you'll be able to have that confidence of praising God through the storm. You'll be able to go through knowing that what you're doing is to honor God. If you have that peace and you're abiding in Christ, that's where that peace comes from. When we're not connected to the vine, we won't have that peace. But if you are that, then things will tend to flow. Things will happen. And you'll see God moving in your life. So that's what's available for us. Not that we've yet arrived, 
But that's the aim of that. So that's where that is. So when we realize, hey, God sees my actions. I'm anxious. Am I okay with God? I've been thinking wrong thoughts. Okay? When we have those thoughts that go in us and we think, I don't know, maybe I'm not saved. God should be punishing me. I deserve to be punished. I deserve to go to hell. We all deserve hell. There's no day that we don't deserve hell. But thanks be to God. By His grace, we're rescued from that. Trust in His provision. Our peace comes from Him. Cast yourself upon Him. So, you're worried about sin in your life? What can we do? We can repent. Yes, repent. Repent quickly. Why do we want to repent quickly? So we can get back to peace. Get back to the joy of the Lord. That's all connected together. So as you say, grace and peace, I, we quick repenting. God, please help me. God, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Not some understanding, all understanding will guard your hearts, hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And then he follows with Philippians 4, 8 with whatsoever is true, whatsoever is noble, whatsoever is right, praiseworthy, excellent. Think about such things. So our thought life is part of that with our peace. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemies. Okay? So the why I'm saying is don't beat yourself up about it. Okay? Acknowledge. Hmm, I'm not at peace. Okay, what's going on? Is there sin I need to confess? Okay? Is there, is there am I thinking things that I shouldn't be thinking of and not thinking of things I should be thinking of? Okay? Am I worried about something I don't have control over because ultimately he's the one who's control over everything? Am I ungrateful? Am I trying to do it in my own strength? That grit and machinery, the gumming it up, is because I'm trying to do my own strength. I won't have peace. So peace will come when we're in the flow of the Spirit, when we're powered by the Spirit and allowing us to do that. And that takes practice. It takes discipline. It takes trusting the Lord. It takes thinking. I'm not saying you don't use your mind at all, but you ask God for wisdom and you seek Him in each moment and walk in that. And we'll talk more about that, of what that looks like. So let's move on to the next three verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. We give thanks to God always for you, for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing Beloved brethren, your election by God. Wow, that's a lot there, actually. Hebert, um, who was a pastor at the Mennonite Brethren Church in Los Angeles, he said, the regularly recurring nature of thanksgiving is also implied in the use of the present tense of the verb. It's their practice to give thanks to God continually, never skipping a day. Unceasingly, that means always grateful. Giving thanks in all circumstances. Okay? He then says also that Paul should in thus include his two co-workers, okay, in the thanksgiving is consistent with the fact that all three stood in the same close relation to the Thessalon Thessalonians is further in accord with the consistent use of the plural in this epistle. He goes on to comment that this expression of his thanks to God is an illustration of Paul's practice of taking his various experiences, whether sad or glad, into the presence of God. That's the point I want to make. All experiences were viewed in relationship to him. Thus, he practiced the presence of God in his life. 
One of the things Paul's trying to let them know, and the example that Paul's setting for us, is what does it mean to live continually with God on your thoughts all day long? Not just in the morning with your quiet time, not just when you come to church, but all day long as your companion, God is there. Hey, I'm struggling with this. God, what should I do? Hey, this is going through my thoughts. Oh, I'm worried about this. God, sorry about that. Like continually having that conversation with the Lord, bringing all things, all struggles, everything good and everything bad. Okay? So he says, making mention of you in our prayers. And you get to see this is something that Paul consistently does. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, For God is my witness, who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. To the church of Ephesus in verses 116, Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then even in Philemon, he tells, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. One of the things we have to wear of, who do we pray for? He's obviously praying for them. Who do we not pray for? Let's look at Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 20 to 23. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. Yet you do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you will go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver. For they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because please the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin, from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. And then verse 24 Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So this is when they didn't trust God and they wanted a king. And that's when they gave them Saul. And Paul said, even though you're wicked, I will still pray for you. So just like tonight, we prayed for the Hamas. We don't just pray for people we like. We don't just pray for people we, we want to be friends with. We don't pray for just the presidents we like that we voted for. Okay? We pray for all our leaders. Okay? That's what Paul is saying, is he praying, and that kind of prayer is not selective in that sense. Sometimes we have to actually probably should pray probably more for the ones that we have the greatest trouble with. And not like, God, help them, save them, like, pound them. That's not prayer, okay? That's not the kind of prayer we're talking about. Is God have mercy on them. God have mercy. He had mercy on us. The same way that he blessed us, that's the same blessing we want to accord them. We want them to have the same. So we want right now, we're talking about what's happening with Hamas and with the Muslims in, in Gaza and the West Bank and all through the Middle East. Right now they're saying, you know, God is great through Alu Akbar and they need prayer. They're acting of anger and their power. They need prayer. You, you know, there's a, the flesh wants to have righteous and vengeance. But the Lord has said, Vengeance is mine. We're called to pray for them, to pray continually, unceasingly. So whenever we have thoughts, and who has thoughts that are not nice towards them? I have. I believe the Lord God wants us to pray for them. So whenever those thoughts come in, that's not whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, praiseworthy and excellent. That's when there's not enough for us to pray. So when Paul prays, when we want to be a praying church, we have to pray for the ones, often the ones who most trouble us. So that's the heart of Paul's prayer, is to pray no matter what they do. I had a little story I'm going to tell you also about prayer. I just read this this afternoon. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. You guys know about pretzels? Well, one of the 
there's different origin stories of where pretzels came. Some say it came from Germany, 12th century. And, um, but one of the stories that I read talked about that it came um, from northern Italy around 1610 AD. A monk had been baking bread that he'd found with some dough leftovers, so he formed them into thin pencil-like rolls and then twisted them into little figures representing children with their arms folded in prayer. Coating them with syrup and salt, he put them in the oven. Finding them very palatable, he gave them as rewards to the youngsters who learned their catechism lessons. He called these tasty morsels pretiola, which in Latin means little reward. This monk who invented pretzels and gave them to the children for knowing answers to Bible questions was using good psychology, explaining that the twisted dough represented them in an attitude of devotion, perhaps he hoped thereby also to remind them to pray in the truths of the words they had only mentally digested. Can we not all learn a lesson from this? Let us also add much prayer to our study of the Bible, beseeching God to give us a deeper heart understanding of its precepts and a greater wisdom and applying its purifying lessons. So the cool thing now is you're not going to be able to look at pretzels the same. <laughs> I'm not. I'm thinking pretzels are going, okay, and it's kids praying, and I need to maybe pray. It'll prompt me every time I eat a pretzel, pray. So um, this is a quote from uh, a lady, um, Mrs. Spittle. Someone prayed as I met the test of temptation fierce and strong. I felt God near. He gave me rest. Someone prayed, I know. Someone prayed when my faith was dim. And when Satan pressed me sore, God answered them, gave strength within. Someone prayed, I know. Here's the other saying they said, and you may not have heard this. Prayer will drive the sin out of your life. Or sin will drive the prayer out of your life. So, some things for us to think about in terms of prayer. The other thing I talked about is faith. God has given us something to see beyond ourselves. There's something stirs within our hearts, within our soul. we have concepts in our mind that aren't tangible. Animals live in something much more tangible. We live something beyond that. So, we can comprehend things we cannot see and believe things we cannot comprehend. Much of what we comprehend, you know, the atoms that make us, the germs and bacteria, viruses, feelings of love, hate, Sacrifice, loyalty, we believe even though we can't really see it. So the person who lives by sight alone, it says here, lives poorly. Faith is learning to live by insight, not just by sight. Faith is learning by insights, not just by what you see. The vast majority of people we deal with operate on that, but they don't realize how much they do is insight and how much they do is faith. We're seeing that in rational. I don't believe because I don't see it. A those who are atheistic, if I don't see it, I don't believe it. I'm going, you believe in love. You don't see it. It's just a biochemical. They think it's a purely deterministic because of neurochemicals in the brain. That's what you have love. It's a very sad existence. So have confidence that God has created something in you. That God has made something special in you because of who he is. And that he's faithful to complete it. But he wants you to trust even when you cannot see it. And that's what that faith is. Uh, it's interesting from a cultural, and, and I, another story that I read that because I went to the Museum of the Bible, it just made it very clear to me how our language determines what we understand and our concepts. So, in the 1840s, um, 
Actually, I won't talk about this. We'll move on. Sorry. So we talked about your, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds faith, love, hope. Where have we heard that before? 1 Corinthians 13, 13, right? And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of, of these is love. And look at Romans 5, 3, 4. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. God works things out so beautifully. On one side, the trials we go through, as we trust in Him, we develop and we rely, we have perseverance, which develops our character and we have hope. But the hope we have in Christ also gives us strength to persevere. So the very trials cultivate hope. So why? We have trial upon trial upon trial. Because God's using it. Because He's training us up. We're going to have trial. The trial is going to build character. Okay? As we persevere, we have character, which will build our hope. And then as we walk in that hope, that'll give us new strength. That's the muscle that'll give us new strength for the next trial that may be greater than what we had before. We've all gone through, and I look at what's happened, for example, in the last six years, and I've shared here before what happened. If I didn't have that cultivated mean, that hope by going through pure life, I wouldn't have been able to deal with that year out afterwards. I had three different lawyers, and I don't like lawyers. And I, I would be sleepless at nights, and I didn't sleep poorly. I think one night in that whole year that I have a restless night. I have more restless nights as pastor than I did then because I had hope knowing that Christ was sufficient. And the opportunity for us and the challenge is really believing and taking hold that God is going to be enough. So the other part that Paul talks about there, he talks about your election by God. Now, I'm not going to get into a big discussion about what that means in terms of deep theology. And we can get to a whole conversation. Suffice it to say, when I talk about election, is God has chosen you. Okay? Now, I believe to some extent, God chooses everybody because that's His nature. He wants that. But God has chosen you. And that's what you have to realize. That you right now are chosen by the Lord. It's not by accident that you're here. It's not by accident. That's the challenge we have to see. Trusting in His goodness that He brought you here for a purpose and a meaning and that He's going to complete that work. So that's the election of God. You know, the Israelites were God's chosen people and we talked about that. Sister Rose prayed about that, the apple of His eye, and that's true. But also those who are in Christ are His chosen people. We are grafted in. He's elected us. He's chosen us. We're part of Him. We're part of Him. We have, we have to abide in Him, stay connected, but we're part of Him. And we can reconnect. It's not so bad that He says, oh, no, I've got to get it. You're done, done with you. I'd say I'm done with you. He doesn't say I'm done with you. Okay? That's the kind of God we have. Okay, let's move on to verses 5 to 7. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Wow. So, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. I mean, he spoke in the synagogue three Saturdays. Okay? Spends a year and a half in Corinth. He's there for three weeks. Paul's saying, there's power. It's not really of me. He's going to talk more. Nothing I can boast. 
when God's words go forth, it has the power to change lives. Okay? There's power in the word. Okay? And in the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who was coming forth and directed him. So that's why he gave him the dream to go to Macedonia. This was the Lord building this. Okay? And the power is a, a working, it's an effective power. I don't know how to describe it any other way. It's a power that's effective. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, he said. And what Paul is saying for us is you became followers of us. Not that he's now a God and you need to follow me like I'm somebody special in that sense, but that as I follow Christ, follow me. That's the challenge for us, is to find those, or the invitation, is to find those who are chasing after Jesus. One of the things that we have in this community together is we're seeing people who've decided, I'm going to chase after God. Pastor Jeff believes in that passionately, and that's what inspires me. I see that with you, when you guys are singing, when we're worshiping, and the choices that you make when you surrender your choices, trusting in eternity, it inspires me. That's where we encourage one another. So we're following each other. That example is what Paul's talking about. So when you see me surrendering my life to Jesus, Paul says, when you see me surrender my life to Jesus, you've also surrendered your life, and that inspires me. In Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And the word here that they use for that is where we get the word mimic, it's mimetes. So basically, Paul is saying, follow or mimic me as I mimic Christ. And as a church, we're going to need to do the same. One of the reasons we, we all need to press in because there's others who need to follow us. They'll follow you. They'll see Christ and you going, okay, that's what I need to do. What should I do here? Well, that's what Troy's doing. That's what David's doing. That may be, that's what I need to be looking at. And so we talked about affliction. So the same pressure, you know, Paul went, and I mentioned what happened to the town. You have to realize they took this guy, Jason, they took him out. So that whole church was under a lot of pressure. The whole town was an uproar. Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave. There was still tremendous pressure in that town. Strong Jewish presence who were not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah didn't like this people distorting the Jewish faith with this new belief that's turning the world upside down, willing to go 50 miles away to stop Paul. Don't doubt that they were doing what they could to disrupt the church at Thessalonica. So they're going through trial. It's not easy. It's not a cakewalk. And they're trusting. Joy in their affliction. You have pressure from the Romans who are, who are not really happy with Christians. It becomes such a situation that, you know, um, they ban Christians from Rome. Nero lit them on torches, not 10 years later. Okay, so you realize they're getting pressure from the Jews. They're getting pressure from the Romans. They're in an environment which is essentially hostile on all sides, which is much, much of what's happening, like in India, in China. It's hostile on all sides. If you're in an, one of the 1040, if you're one of the Muslim countries in the Middle East, hostile on every side. Nobody can come to faith without being rejected by your family. Your family won't go to your businesses. They'll even, you know, if you're a female, they'll kill you. If you're a young child, they'll kill you. Your brothers will kill you. Your uncles will kill you. That's what's happening for those in the faith now. They have to meet in secret. How do you, how do you be bold about your faith when you know you could be executed, beheaded? Infidel, especially if you were a Muslim. You know, in these, most of these countries, like if you're in Doha, if you're in Abu Dhabi, and if you're in the, all these international 
Middle Eastern countries, you can be Christian going there, but you can't be somebody who's Muslim and come to Christ. Then you're an infidel. No proselytizing. India's just made a huge rule about that. No proselytizing. You can't convert anybody away from it. The Jews right now, there's some spitting on the Christians there right now because of the festival, Shukot, that's there and the Feast of Tabernacles. These, they know that the, and what we just prayed. What do we pray for? We pray for Jews to come to Christ. You think the Jews there don't know that's our desire when we go there? They don't like it. The Orthodox Jews, they don't like that. You're telling us we have it wrong? For 3,000 years, we got it all wrong? Who are you to say that? See the pressure and the stress? It's not by man's reasoning. It has to be by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. There's not our strength. Our reasoning can't fix this. So, and uh, let's move to the last three verses in first chapter. Verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't even say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Wow, what a statement. He's basically saying, I can't take any credit. You guys are going, well, what can I say about it? You got it. You guys got this. I mean, you're going around believing it so much, just going like wildfire. Paul is not concerned about getting credit. It's a challenge for us. We're praying for revival. And I've, I've, it was hit me this afternoon. We're praying for revival. How would we feel if revival broke out in every other church within the county, but not ours? Would we be glad that the Holy Spirit's moving? Or would we feel a little bit, uh, how come it didn't happen to us? Like, what are we? Like, chicken, let me see. Where's our mind? What's our mind thought? We should be grateful that God's moving. It doesn't matter where He's moving. Whether it's Asbury, whether it's somewhere else, it doesn't matter. It's not about who deserves it. Nobody deserves it. Nobody's better for it. You don't earn it. Okay? That's not what it's about. And so Paul's not taking credit for it. He's just delighted. You're going out. What can we say? We have nothing to say. You got it. Because you understand. In that time that he's there, they got the theology. They got the foundation of the faith. That was by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit told them. They didn't have the Bible. He's starting to write it. Right? They didn't have the Gospels. They had testimony. He talked about it. Just like Stephen. They talked about the story. I mean, they had those who were Jews. They understand the Old Testament. But in terms of the New Testament, that wasn't really available. So what did that? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit went into them and changed them, transformed them. And they believed completely in the midst of trial and persecution, to boldly proclaim about it. So boldly that everybody heard about it. They're in a port, so that means they're talking to everybody about it. Do you know about Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he did for me. That's the kind of faith they had. And everybody followed. Everybody heard about them. He said, those men, so the very thing that that persecution did to try to quench it, what did it do? It exploded. So do we count it joy when we go through trials, when we go through persecution? God's going to use it because it can explode. As things get darker, our light will have to shine brighter because he wants us to be surrendered, but we will go through trial. And that's what they did. They were unashamed about the gospel boldly proclaiming it, trusting in God. Okay? And they made choices. What did they do? They gave up their idols. They gave up their security and the things, the things they wanted, the things they were after. We have different idols. 
We have different things that we put our faith and trust in. Are we willing to really give them up? Sometimes we say, yeah, kind of. I'm going to hedge my bets a little. I need to be sensible. You have to be reasonable after all. What does reasonable look like in view of eternity? That's the challenge for us. What does reasonable look like in view of eternity? And so it's sound for them. So what I said, Paul said, the example, you followed my example and followed Christ. They themselves became the example. They're the example that went forth to show what God has done. And others heard about them. So we talked earlier when we went through First and Second Corinthians. Paul's now talking to Corinthians. That was written a few years later, okay, after the visit and everything. And he's basically saying, when, it, when he was in Corinth at that time, writing to the Thessalonians, he's getting support from Macedonia, referring to the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica. They're the ones who are supporting him. They're the ones who are sending money so that he can minister to the Corinthian church. Even though they didn't have very much, even though they're going through trial and persecution, they still insisted on supporting him. They weren't convinced. They weren't like cajoled. They said, no, no, no. We definitely want to support you. We counted a joy. And that's the heart attitude they had. They were unconcerned about themselves, only concerned about the God because they were waiting for the Son from heaven. So they were getting ready for Christ. They were waiting for Jesus' return. What we call the second advent, right? The first advent when he already came. This is now the second advent when he comes back again. The second, his coming. There will, he will come. And we're going to talk much more about that. And we'll get into some of the theology about that. But he will come. And they're waiting. It's been 2,000 years. Have we given up waiting? Do we really wait? If you don't already know, virtually every major prophecy has been fulfilled for Christ to return now. There were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled at Christ's first coming. Statistically, you can't calculate how infinitesimal that would be. There's over a thousand prophecies referring to his second return. But every major one he could come virtually at any time. Now, we can talk a little bit about, and we'll get into some things about pre-trib, post-trib, and mid-trib. I'm not going to get you too bogged about it, but, and that won't be today, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. But regardless, the key is to be prepared. We may not know the day or the hour, but we will have a sense of the season. Regardless, we're called at each moment to be ready to live in light of eternity in the now. And so the last part, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We talk about God's love and we talk about how he loves everyone and that he wishes all to come into repentance. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about his wrath. We're kind of uncomfortable here in the West to talk about his wrath, certainly now, because everything is kumbaya, everything's good. You know, those little signs that say, be kind, everything's nice, don't want to create a fence, tolerate everything, <coughs> except if you're Christian, we don't tolerate you very much, but, but tolerate everything. What we don't appreciate, two things for us, for, and we're going to talk about that in the fifth chapter when we're not appointed to wrath, but wrath will be coming. And the hard part for us to get is wrath is intimately connected with his love. Intimately connected with his love. Cock writes, the wrath of God is in its deepest ground love. Love itself becomes a consuming fire to whatever is opposed to the nature of goodness. 
God hates evil. He has to. He can't be good and not like you. He can't. He hates evil with a passion, adamantly against it. So when you read the Old Testament, you can see a sense he hates it. He has tremendous love. He wants nobody to go repentant. So he made a way through the atoning blood of Jesus to pay the penalty for all the evil. So all the evil throughout all history, of all that sin, all of it went on Jesus' shoulders. Every bit of it at the cross. Every evil thought we have had, do have, and will have, of every human being that's ever lived, every action, everything went on the cross, and that's what he paid for. And so he gave away out, out of love. But if you don't take that and you choose to stay in wickedness because he wants that by, by the cross and it's from the cross that we do things out of faith and the works of faith. From the cross, out of the love that he, we have received, we love others. And so we act in good and he knows that we have not yet arrived and we may not likely arrive this side of heaven. Okay? But he knows that's our heart's desire and he will complete his good work in heaven when he cleanses us and makes us whole. But apart from that, and those who reject the gift, the free gift he offers to Christ, there will be only wrath left. C.S. Lewis said, hell is locked from the inside. They have chosen that rebellion. It's an act of rebellion. I had a choice to believe about Jesus when I was a kid. People talked to me about it, but I didn't. I refused. Because of my pride. I didn't want somebody to tell me what to do. It's the same challenge because when you have a God and you believe it, you have to give an account. And so Hebert, back to him again, says, the fact of God's wrath against sin is declared in both the Old and New Testaments. His wrath against sin arises out of the holiness of his nature. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Without the truth of divine wrath, the universe would sink into moral chaos. In the words of Reinecker, um, God would completely dissolve and deny himself as God if he would not prove himself as a real and terrible wrath against the sinning man. God cannot and will not favor sin. Therefore, his wrath burns against everyone who opposes him. The wrath of God is not an illusion but a reality. The manifestation of divine wrath is perfectly compatible with God's love. Anger had its proper place in the perfect human character of Christ. Okay? It's like in Mark 3, 5, when a guy came into the temple and he had the wounded hand. He was going to heal him and he was angry. Like, of course I'm going to heal him. And he got angry because of course the right thing to do. There's so it's not that God can't be angry. There's a difference about a righteous anger. God must be angry with sin because of the destructive character of sin. His love will not allow him to be tolerant towards the devastating effects of sin. Hugh aptly remarks, for God to have permitted sin to flourish unchecked and unpunished and passively to have watched the world degenerate into a dung heap of corruption and violence would have been far, very far removed from an expression of love, apart from the fact that it would have argued the impotence of his purposes in creation and the incompetence of his hand to control the affairs of men, which would mean in turn that he was not God at all. That's the complaint that atheists say. Why is there evil in the world if there's a God? How come he tolerates this? The biggest complaint they have is I had, if there's a good God, why is there evil? It's because there's a good God that God permits a season of time because he wants... Oh, and the problem is, we are the evil ones. We look at evil, there's evil, not me, I'm good. That's the problem. We are evil. God is patient with me evil to, to repent. And he doesn't want any to perish. That's why he's long-suffering. And that's why he's waiting. He's waiting for all to come into repentance. And I don't know the timeline, why he hasn't come earlier. But I'm kind of grateful you know, he didn't come earlier than 30 years ago because I wouldn't have been in. <laughs> okay, so maybe there's somebody tomorrow 
who can be saved, will be grateful that he didn't come already. There is a way, and that way is that, and that's where they are. Do we, are we like the Thessalonians and, and passionately that all the world would know that we're Christian? Does everybody know that we're Christian? So, to be a disciple, when we talk about faith, what does it mean to be a follower? What these Thessalonians were, they were real disciples. What does that look like? And I read this from George Peters, and I'll close with this. A Christian disciple is more than a believer. A disciple is more than a learner, at least a learner in the ordinary sense of the word. A disciple is more than a follower and imitator of Christ, more than a holy enthusiast for Christ, yea, even more than living a life of full devotion to the Lord. More than all that. A disciple is a believing person living a life of conscience, of conscious and constant identification with the Lord in life, death, and resurrection through words, behavior, attitudes, motives, and purpose, fully realizing Christ's absolute ownership of his life, joyfully embracing the saviorhood of Christ, delighting in the lordship of Christ, and living by the abiding indwelling resources of Christ according to the imprinted pattern and purpose of Christ for the chief end of glorifying his Lord and Savior. There is a divine fullness and content in the concept of discipleship which must, we must not limit. The call to Christian discipleship must always be interpreted to involve a call to humble fellowship, constant fellowship, sanctified open-mindedness, undisputed obedience, ready submission, heroic faith, arduous labor, unselfish service, self-renunciation, patient suffering, painful sacrifice, and cross-bearing. It's the bringing of all of life under the Lordship of Christ. This is not only the purpose of salvation, but it is the fullness of salvation, redemption from self and devotion to the Lord. And to this, every Christian is called. To this, every Christian is called. Too often, however, Christian discipleship has been detached from the everyday life of every believer and thought of in terms of the great, the heroic, and a peculiar sense of saintliness is being attached to instead of being lived out daily in the ordinary affairs of life and relationships. It was written over 50 years ago by George Peters. And basically, some people, you know, you read, if you read The Walk of Repentance about the martyrs or read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see all those people, they're special. That's them. They were, that's why they're saints. And we can classify them as saints so that we don't have to be like them because we're not that good. But the Bible actually calls us all saints. We're all called to that same standard. It's not any less for us. It's not any easier for us. But it's not meant to be. It's not about ease. It's about Christ. It's about what we really believe. Do we really believe what he's given for us no matter what? No matter what happens. Even if nothing happens the way I want to in this life, knowing that my hope is in Christ and that he's going to work all the good things which are going to be eternal things in every moment. That's the abandon he's talking about. That's what the Thessalonians believed in. That's what he talks about. That's why they had that testimony. They were that kind of disciple. Everything was under that. They gave everything else up, and they go, that's it. It's all you, Jesus, in everything. That's what he wants of us. Wow. Wow. Praise God, the Holy Spirit can equip us. We just have to say yes. A lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good, good God. You know what we need, Father. Help us. Help us. The, the task looks daunting. I look at that and go, man, I'm nowhere near that. But, but you're a good God. And Father, do what you need to do that we may be like that, like the Thessalonians, that, that people know about our faith, that we will trust you no matter what the persecuting trial, that you'll prepare for us because the time is drawing nigh and we'll have to be ready, Lord, to pray for those who we dislike, to love the way that you loved, 
we were your enemies and you reconciled and made us one, Lord. To show the love that you've given us to others, Lord. Have your way. May you get all the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.